episode of Shades Midweek, a podcast where we talk about theology, culture, and all things Shades. I am the worshiping community pastor here at Shades Valley, John Mark DeRoe. I am here with Pastor Jonathan Hafes and Pastor Brad Brown. What's up, everybody? Well, let me just say that I am so glad that Jonathan is back. The what, podcast was less You know, it really suffered. Him. really suffered last week. It did. So, Jonathan, we had to bring in Andrew. We just want to start out. Yeah. We just want to start out by saying how much we love you and how glad we are to have you back. How much we respect you as an individual, a leader, a boss, a friend, a spiritual mentor. So, Jonathan, how are you doing, man? Said I quit. I'm walking out of the room. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is, you're you're pulling a total Romans 12 right now, which we're, the only reason I mentioned it is because we're going to talk about it later. This is, uh, this is a overcoming evil with good <laughs> when, you, when you're when people do horrible things to you. Exactly, we're warming people up. Do right good now. in return. You're heaping burning coals on my head. That's yes. what's going on. It's a warm up act. This is don't don't be fooled, ladies and gentlemen. This is uh this is Brad's way of of passive aggressively getting back at me for being so mean to him. And I wasn't I wasn't mean to you by myself while you were gone. That's true. On, there were the others. That were, there were others un, that were complicit. Unnamed others who participated. Hey, man, we're just trying to publicly affirm you right now. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's hard to accept. Yeah, sometimes. You got to receive it sometimes. I do hope that everybody out there knows and understands the sarcasm that exists in these relationships. So, <laughs> you were on yeah. vacation. Uh, how was your vacation? Was it nice, Jonathan? I was. I was on vacation, and it was. It was nice. Um, Good. Uh, my family was in uh, North Georgia, and we were just pretty lazy. We stayed at this place, uh, kind of kind of like a cabin-type setting, and we really didn't leave. Uh, we left once, I think, but other than that. Yeah. We just chilled there. We're outside a lot. Uh, there's a little creek, and that's pretty much all my kids did all week long. I love it. play in the creek. I love it. Mm, it's great. Brad, what's new with you, man? Well, I'm a proud parent, so... Yeah, some of you may have seen, uh, but if you haven't seen uh, Oxford, our little toy, mini your first b- b- born Gordon Doodle. <laughs> I was gonna keep it going. Did you just call him a Gordon Doodle? <laughs> I was gonna keep going. We both we both failed. Um, Fail. Yeah, Homewood Life Instagram account uh, had you know posted COVID puppies. If you got did a, they a really puppy during COVID? Yeah, not puppies that have COVID, but. <laughs> If you Which got is a, a puppy thing, apparently during COVID, so Oxford was the first picture. So there were a lot of pictures wow. on there, and he was the first one. Which model dog? That's, that's intentional. You know, the first picture is the one that's going to grab people's attention. Mm-hmm. Y'all are pretty so, much famous now. Yes. So we're thinking about we're th- you know we're thinking about his future. I don't want to project my dreams onto him. Right? That's not good parenting. Yeah. But you're going to quit your jobs. you got a commercial dog now. You're moving to L.A. Yeah, hire an agent. He has his own TikTok account by now, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, yeah, that's. I'm just filled with joy and pride. What about you? Um, so, Brad, you're going to get a kick out of this. Last night, I sat down. I watched a movie last night. I'm shocked. Um, and it's a documentary feature that I found on Hulu that I had heard about before on some other podcasts that I listened to. It's called Honeyland, and it I've is. I've not seen this. Okay, I'm just let me tell you guys about this real quick because it's fantastic. I have so, something I really want this to be about. Okay, so, <laughs> but I don't think it's about that okay, at all. Okay, so bees. Yes. It, 
just hold on now. Just wait a minute. I was hoping that he was watching a documentary and learning how to become a beekeeper. I was really hoping that's what this was going to be. So it was played at the Sundance Film Festival. It won like three awards there. It's the first uh, at the Oscars this past year. It's the first film that's ever been nominated at the same time for Best International Film and Best Documentary Feature. So it's the only film that's ever done that before. And it is about a beekeeper... Yes, in the mountains of Macedonia, and her life, and she lives in this remote village in the mountains of Macedonia. The closest city is four hours away. Uh, she, you know, she lives with her mother, who's eighty-five, and is bedridden for the last four years. Uh, and so she's sick. So she takes care of her mom. She's not married. Her sisters have past when they were younger and so she uses these ancient beekeeping techniques and she sells this honey she goes into town and she sells this honey that's like completely raw unfiltered completely organic like and everybody's saying like how great her honey is and all this stuff and so the plot really picks up when a family with eight children move into the village next to her and they try to uh, have honey and ma- make their own honey and beekeep. And uh, so da, da, da. so I'm not going to go. I know it may sound boring, <laughs> but I'm telling you, it is it is a fantastic film worth watching. It's only like an hour and a half. It is foreign language, so they're speaking in their language. But I'm not going to go any further than that, but that's where the tension really gets going so it's amazing it's amazing what she does like what she does and she has this whole philosophy about uh only take half the honey and leave the other half for the bees and so it's this philosophy that she's lived by when she's when she's taking the honey to put it in the jar she never takes all of the honey away from the bees and um she's just brilliant just all the things that she does and it's such a contrast to what happens when this family moves in next to her wow it's amazing does she wear any beekeeping protective gear not really no so i didn't think so i think she's she's uh ancient beekeeping practices (laughs) that was the image that came in my mind i don't know what else that looks like did the documentary make her i think she's immune probably to being stung by bees did wow yeah that is not me did the documentary maker set out to just make a documentary about her, it was, and then it was like, oh, it just happens. This family yeah. moves in. It's like tension. So Man. the filmmakers had heard about her. They were they were doing something else. I think it was more of a, almost like a, like they were talking about climate and things like that, and how the natural world is being affected. And they end up finding out about her. I guess they don't go into any of this in the, in in the film. You have to read about this later, which I did. And they find her and her mom, and they really enjoy her story so much that they just start filming her on location there in this remote village. And then this family just happens to move in and creates this whole thing that that you see play out. So can I just say, before we spend the next hour talking about this, <laughs> so many questions. Can I just say that this is one of the most John Mark moments <laughs> I feel like I've ever had. Because it's like, okay, I'm watching a documentary. 
that's won multiple awards at festivals. It's in a foreign language. And and I'm doing outside research to read about the documentary that I'm watching in this foreign language about a woman who keeps bees in Macedonia. Yeah, totally. I just, if you don't know who John Mark DeRoe is, we just explained him for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That let, is him. Let me just tell well, you, the Macedonia where she lives, I mean, she... Is beautiful. Is beautiful. I mean, it, mm. it looks like... You know, it reminds me of the times I've been out west to like Colorado or New Mexico, like places like that, just vast, just mountains and these landscapes. It's it's very pretty where she lives, even though she she basically lives, I mean, in poverty, essentially. I mean, mm. so, yeah. Now, it's, is there a way to to purchase her honey? Can you buy it online? I don't know. Or I didn't look into that. I don't if, know. If I'm at the Piggly Wiggly, is it is it on the aisle? I don't think it's there at Publix. Okay, you but know whose honey is at the Piggly Wiggly? Is that family that moved in next to her? <laughs> Their honey's there. Crap! I've been supporting them for the past ten years. <laughs> so, anyways, that was a major derail on this podcast to talk about that. But you know, I really wanted to share that. Our few, that's great. our few listeners that actually stick through this thing, I think that's why they come. It's yes. for these moments. Well, yeah. yeah. For sure. And then I think everyone else just fast forwards ten minutes in. That's, <laughs> That's true too. It's a safe bet. What are we actually when talking they heard honest? when they heard beekeeping in Macedonia? They said next episode. Most podcasts you have to put up with ads. With this podcast, you just have to put up with senseless banter. Yeah. So Jonathan, what are we doing today? What in the world are we doing? Yes, we are doing something. Well, you know, after I listened to last week's episode on my vacation, I fully wanted to come back and, and just talk about a movie, especially since, you know, or, or television shows, since since we all know the kind of artful entertainment I enjoy. Yes. You know, I, most recently I rewatched Parks and Rec, so I thought we could have a real thoughtful, <laughs> oh, uh, yes. deep conversation about a lot the... Of, a lot the, of Christian themes yeah, in about Parks the, and Rec. The symbolism and, and the way it's about, uh, I'm just, whatever. <laughs> No, um, well, uh, so what we're actually going to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No jokes here. This is real. (laughs) What what we're actually going to talk about uh, is from, uh, I I thought we could expand a little bit on something uh, I brought up the last time I preached at Chase, which has been several weeks now. Um, Yes. But uh, we we were in Revelation chapter 6. The sermon is entitled The Seals. Uh, We walked through the the breaking of the first five seals uh, on the the scroll. Um, uh, And we learned about Revelation 5. Um, And uh, I thought we could expand on something that I just didn't have time to get into. Believe it or not, uh, in a sermon, there's never enough time to cover everything. Um, and I, I know that that might be hard to believe that I leave things out, but I do. Um, and uh, you practice restraint, is what you're saying. I try. <laughs> it, it, anyway, uh, there in the midst of uh, the breaking of these seals in Revelation uh, six, there comes a turning point. It's seal number five. So the first four seals uh, release what are popularly called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, but then at seal five, uh, the scene turns from earth and what's happening there to heaven and to this picture of, of the martyrs, uh, Christian martyrs, crying out to God. And they pray. And here are the words of their prayer in Revelation 6 and verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, 
How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And I, I talked about that verse for maybe 30 seconds um, hmm. and just really kind of gave a brief. I said something to the effect of this isn't a, a cry for personal revenge. Uh, it, it's a cry for justice, for God to right all wrongs and, and all that. And that's virtually all I said. And I had wanted to be able to sink our teeth into this a little bit deeper because when we hear the words of that prayer, I think most of us, myself, we struggle with that. Mm -hmm. Like a prayer like that bothers us. And this isn't the only place we find a prayer like this. Uh, There are prayers like this all over the Bible, uh, Old Testament and New Testament. Um, And it, it bothers us, I think, because it seems to contradict, um, the what what we're taught to do uh, with regard to our enemies, yeah, by Jesus specifically, what we're taught to do with regard to praying for our enemies, yeah. Uh, so most specifically, Matthew five verse forty four, Jesus says, uh, "You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you." Hmm. So when we hear. Jesus say we're supposed to love our enemies, pray for them. You know, how in the world does that fit with what these martyrs are praying in Revelation 6, 10? Surely that's not what he meant by pray for your enemies. Pray right. that, that their blood, that your blood would be avenged, you know, yeah. on, on them. And, and so it creates this, this tension in us. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Kind of dig into it a little more. Yeah, yeah. So so what's going on here? Well, I mean, it, it, the first thing to recognize is that, you know, um, the, the prayer that's being prayed in Revelation 6.10, it's not unbiblical. I mean, we just mentioned that that kind of prayer shows up all over the Bible. Yeah. It's not the only place. So it's, it, it's not like, you know, Jesus was unaware of these kinds of prayers because they show up all over the Old Testament as well. The the prayer that the martyrs are praying in Revelation 6:10, it is it's prayed with Old Testament language. It's it's soaked in the vocabulary of the Psalms. Hmm. So I mean the prayer starts out, "How long, O Lord?" Yeah. I mean I mean that's a psalmist cry of lament. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And I think we recognize that really quickly, but the other portion of the prayer also comes from the Psalms, you know, as they pray, you know, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, that's an imprecatory prayer, mm-hmm. uh, which is a fancy word uh, that's used in biblical studies uh, to imprecate, means to basically call down uh, a curse on somebody, to mm-hmm. ask for something to happen to another person. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so an imprecatory psalm is a psalm that's asking God to bring down his judgment on on my enemies. And so the psalms have both laments, how long, O Lord, and they have imprecatory psalms, God, execute your justice on my enemies. And this prayer in Revelation 6.10 combines those. In other words, like it is, it is a thoroughly, from start to finish, 
biblical prayer. Mm-hmm. It's biblical to pray for justice. Hmm. And I think not only is it biblical, I think that we, on our gut level, understand where a cry like that comes from. Yeah. I mean, do we not currently in our society see people crying out for justice? Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that there is a whole host of diversity opinion uh, and political stances about a whole host of issues going on uh, in our in our world uh, in, in, in our country right now. But at its root, when you look at all of the protests surrounding racial injustices right now, what's ultimately being expressed here is a deep heart cry for justice. Mm hmm. I mean, this is something like like you don't have to be a Christian. You just have to be a human being mm-hmm. to understand that gut desire. Yeah. So, you know, I I, I, I think that all of us get that um, on a certain level, and and I think that the Bible actually does the best job at giving expression to that in a way that actually is ultimately healthy, good, and loving. Hmm. I think that the Bible gives expression to these cries for justice in a way that is actually in harmony with praying for our enemies, uh, with loving our enemies and praying for their good. Yeah. I think that ultimately this tension that we feel between these two prayers we've talked about, um, that I think that ultimately they're not at odds. I think that the tension is ultimately resolved in the gospel. Hmm. So, yeah. So walk us through that. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of good stuff there. So to kind of take the turn, I think Romans 12 which I mentioned earlier jokingly about you heaping coals on my head. Um, I think that Romans 12 uh, is is one of the best places to s- begin seeing how this uh, praying for my enemies because I, I want to love my enemies like Jesus commanded. I want to pray for them and pray for their good. And this heart, gut cry for justice. I think Romans 12 begins to show us how these things come together. So Romans 12, I'm going to start with verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's good news. Like that is mm-hmm. that is a promise from a sovereign God that justice will be done, that in the end, no one gets away with anything. That That's good news. I'm able to look at any person on this planet and say every wrong ever done to you will be righted. Hmm. You, no abuser wins. No tyrant wins. No dictator wins. Gas chambers don't win. Cancer doesn't win. Child abuse doesn't win. Rapists don't win. Mm. None of them win. Mm-hmm. God says vengeance is his and he will 
repay. He will do what is right and bring justice. And so it's right for us to pray for that. Yeah. It's right for us to pray, Lord, bring your justice. Yes. But watch what happens in Romans 12. So because we have that promise that God will do that, and it's good for us to pray for God to do that, look at what it does to us. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, so in other words, don't avenge yourselves. Instead of doing that, do this. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. In other words, what Paul argues right here is the fact that God will make sure justice happens means you don't have to take it into your own hands. Mm. You are actually freed from the need to get revenge or to avenge yourself, and you can actually do good mm. to your enemy. It's, it's the fact that, because you know justice will be done. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that God will ensure justice is done that empowers you to pursue the good of your enemy. Hmm. So even if you want to go in, in this route of saying, okay, Jonathan, you've said this person that's done me wrong, God will ensure justice so I can actually you know, do good to them and pray for their good. Okay, what if God grants that prayer? So what if I'm praying for my enemy who's done me wrong and I'm praying that that ultimate good would be done to them, that they would repent and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus? And they do. Well, how is God making sure that justice is done now? I mean, what they did to me, they, they've been forgiven by God in Christ, so hasn't my sin, hasn't the sin that they did against me just been swept under the rug now? It's not going to get handled? Mm-hmm. Well, no, it is because every single person that is forgiven by God is forgiven by God in Christ. Their sin is dealt with in the cross. Justice is still executed against that sin. It's executed in the cross. In other words, when I say that God will ensure that justice is executed against every wrong ever, that happens in one of two ways. It happens either by people repenting and putting their faith and trust in Christ And in that case, justice is still executed against their sin. It's executed on Christ, on the cross, as their substitute. But Mm -hmm. it's still done. Mm -hmm. God's justice is on display in the cross. It's either executed that way or people bear the weight of their sin on their own head. But either way, God ensures that justice is done. Mm -hmm. And this is what actually frees me to pray for my enemies to come to repentance and to pray for anyone that doesn't come to repentance, Lord, execute your justice. Mm -hmm. These prayers are not intention. I can pray both of these things and I should pray both of these things. In fact, I do with one prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught me to pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When I pray for God's kingdom to come, I am simultaneously praying that 
people would be brought to the saving knowledge of Jesus, people who currently are enemies of the kingdom of God, that they would repent and be brought into his kingdom. But I'm also praying that his kingdom would come in full, meaning anyone who ultimately rejects his kingdom would have ultimate justice executed and they would be removed hmm. from the kingdom of God. So I, it, it, it is the ultimate combination of both of these prayers. It is a loving prayer and it's an imprecatory prayer. Hmm. It's, it's both. So th- this is, I think, how we begin to see these things coming together and where they ultimately come together is in the cross. Uh, in the cross, uh, we see Jesus pray in Luke 23, 24, as he hangs upon the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prays for his enemies, for their forgiveness, for their repentance, for they know not what they do. How is he able to pray like that? I think that we're given the answer in First Peter First Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. We know he didn't. He, we just read that he prayed, Father, forgive them. They didn't know what they do. How did he do that? Here's the answer in First Peter. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Hmm. Because Jesus trusted ultimate justice will be done, he was freed. To He didn't have to threaten. He didn't have to revile. He could pray that his enemies would find forgiveness through the very work that he was accomplishing on the cross. And here's the amazing thing that Peter does in 1 Peter. He connects what Christ did with what we are called to do. If I just back up, I just read you 1 Peter 2, 22 and 23. If I back up one verse to verse 21, it says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Follow in his steps. Entrust yourself to the God who judges justly so that you don't have to revile. You don't have to seek revenge. You can pray for those who do you wrong. This becomes even more explicit just a few chapters later in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're told, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will be, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's the same language of what Jesus did. Hmm. We're told when we suffer, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator who to the God who judges justly and that empowers us to do good, to follow in the footsteps of Christ. It empowers us to pray for our enemies. We pray for them to repent. We pray for God's justice to be done. We pray the way that Jesus prayed in the cross. So I think that that's what I wanted to say. That's what got cut. (laughs) 
<laughs> you should have just said that, Jonathan. Why are you holding back? Right. It would have only added that was, what, that was beautiful. Like, like 15, 20 minutes to the to this room. <laughs> so, I mean, just to, to kind of talk about this, uh, I guess, a little bit practically. Mm-hmm. So when when we see the injustices that take place in the world around us, we can do both of these things. We can pray for people to come to repentance in Christ, and we can pray for God's justice to be done. Those things are not at odds. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, we can we can pray for people to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and be held accountable for their actions. We those things are not at odds. Mm. Um, so we can pray for justice to come on our enemy while at the same time loving our enemy. It, those two things aren't antithetical. Right. Well, and I think that, you know, it, it, it we, we have to start in a place of humility because when we pray for God to bring his justice, uh, I, I think that, that automatically has to put us in a position where we recognize God's justice should be brought on us. Are you implying that we do injustice, <laughs> Jonathan? That maybe scripture talks about that just a little bit, that all have sinned <laughs> fallen short of the glory of God. Mm. Yeah. So any call for God's justice has to has to see that God's justice should rightly fall on me, and it hasn't because I have a perfect substitute who stood in my place in Jesus Christ, and so I can pray that just as I have uh, been covered by the blood of Christ, that that so too my uh, my enemies, these people out here who are acting unjustly, all of these things, that they would come to a saving knowledge mm. of of Christ as well. Uh, but that's not antithetical to asking for God's justice to be done because, I mean, that's asking for his justice to be done in the cross. Right. You know, um, but if people don't repent, asking for his justice to be done through his kingdom coming in full. I mean, these things these things are married. They they go together. So, yes. so uh, to, to, to get a little bit more practical with it, when you're praying through the Psalms, you know, I, I, it's something that I think... Uh, a lot of people try to do use the Psalms as a prayer book. It's a good thing to do. You mm-hmm. know, use the Psalms to guide your prayers, and you come upon uh, an imprecatory Psalm. Some Psalms are imprecatory, like on the whole scale. Uh, the whole Psalm is that mm-hmm. way. But in a lot of Psalms, even if the Psalm itself is not an imprecatory Psalm, you'll still find a line or two in there. Yeah, it's praying for God to execute His. His justice, like, and I think that people struggle when they come across those things. Like, yeah. how are we supposed to pray that? You're saying don't s- skip over it. No, don't skip. It. Okay, don't that, s- that might be the initial reaction. Right, 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 right. <laughs> don't don't skip it because I mean the the saints in Revelation six mm. are praying these things. Now, I think that I think that first, when we come to these, there is a recognition that this kind of justice should fall on my own head. And it doesn't because of Christ. Uh, and I think that there is a that leads us to pray first and foremost for the repentance of people. But I think it also leads us to pray in an eschatological way for God's ultimate justice to come and for mm-hmm. His kingdom to be established. I think it ultimately leads us to the Lord's prayer. And I think uh, there there's the oh, I can't remember his name right now. I think his name is Trevor Lawrence. Uh, I heard uh, an interview with this guy on another podcast that I listened to, and he's done his uh, doctoral work on the imprecatory psalms. Mm. And it was just—it was a very helpful podcast. I would—I uh, uh, would actually tell people listen to that more than this. 
Listen to um, both. It's uh, the the title of the podcast uh, is Mere Fidelity, and if you just want to find this uh, episode, just go to to that podcast and search the word imprecatory, and you'll you'll find it. It's an interview with with this guy, um, but he gives some very helpful frameworks for how to approach and apply uh, and pray the imprecatory psalms. Um, it's interesting to think about the imprecatory psalms as a way of stirring up love for our enemies. Yeah. Yeah, right. I, mean, I mean, for sure. And one of the things he does that I think is very helpful is he gives the biblical framework, uh, the context, the cultural context, the biblical context uh, that these psalms are being prayed out of. Because I mm. think uh, through our kind of modern Western American eyes, when we approach any part of the Bible, really, we read it very individualistically. Right. And so that's how we read the imprecatory Psalms, too. We read it as this very individualistic prayer for revenge upon our enemies. Right. And, and that's not the place that these prayers are actually coming out of. The, these prayers are coming out of a place of God's people who have been called to uh, to to be a kingdom of priests, you know, the Jewish people, they were to be a kingdom of priests. They were to represent God in the world. They were to have a kingdom that showed what the kingdom of God looked like. And these prayers are leveled against oppressors who are opposing God's kingdom, mm-hmm. who are coming in and, 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 and waging war against God's people, slaughtering God's people. Um, they're uh, waging war against God's king. Uh, coming after his life, they're they're uh, insulting God and and his people, and and so the prayer is is exactly like Jesus is teaching us to pray for God's kingdom to be established. Like that's that's the place where these prayers are coming from. It's God, don't let this happen. God, mm-hmm. don't let your people be slaughtered. V- vindicate uh, your name. Do do justice. So even if we want to go. To I think the imprecatory psalm that gets brought up the most by people as being the most difficult. Mm-hmm. I think it's Psalm one thirty seven. I don't have it in front of me. Uh, you can look it up if you want to. But it's where it's where the psalmist prays, uh, "Blessed are those who who dash the heads of the 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 children of my enemies against mm. the rocks." Yeah, that's it, a tough one. Yeah, and, and people are like, "What in the world? How do I pray that?" Yeah. Um, what's going on here? But the the image that's actually being given here is God put an end to the cycles of violence. There, my enemies, the enemies of your people that are coming and trying to destroy your people, uh, put a stop to that, an ultimate stop to that. Don't even let another generation of oppressors rise again to continue this cycle of violence, put it uh, into it's, it's a mm. prayer for an end to the cycle of violence. And we pray the same thing. Yeah. When we're praying for God's kingdom to come, we're praying, bring an end to evil. And you just, you feel the, the gut wrenching cry. Right. It's there. So right. I think when we approach the imprecatory Psalms, uh, first, I think we approach them through the lens of Jesus. This also comes from Trevor Lawrence in that interview, and he helpfully points out uh, Jesus fulfills the role on every side of these imprecatory psalms. In other words, mm. you have the role of the person praying it, the person who's oppressed. Well, 
Jesus was oppressed and violence was done against him unjustly. Mm-hmm. He fulfills the role of the person praying. Uh, he fulfills the role of the person being prayed against, the uh, the enemy who God's wrath needs to be poured out upon. Jesus came and bore the curse uh, upon the cross. Uh, he was crucified outside the city as an enemy. Um, and Jesus fulfills the role of the God to whom we pray to mm-hmm. ultimately bring justice. So Jesus is on mm-hmm. all sides of this prayer. It's beautiful. And so I think that we, we have to start there mm-hmm. and and put this through a lens of what Christ has done in fulfilling the imprecatory Psalms. And first, how that's good news for us, mm-hmm. how it could be good news for the world. But then I do think that ultimately does lead us to pray these prayers in an eschatological sense. And by that, I mean in an ultimate fulfillment sense of God, bring your kingdom in full, establish it and put an end yeah. to injustice yeah. in the world. Yes, and, and I think that that's the ultimate way that we pray these things. And I think that that's the way that the saints in Revelation 6 are praying. Mm-hmm. God, win. How long mm-hmm. until you put an ultimate end to evil? Yes. And to the evil that's being done against your name and the evil that's being done against your your people. Yes. And uh and yeah, Revelation is going to give an answer mm-hmm. to to that question, not in terms of time. Like here's the timestamp date for, for when I'm gonna put an end to this. But it's gonna give an answer into why God delays, both mm-hmm. for the sake of his people and for the sake of the world. And it's ultimately going to answer that God won't delay forever. Hmm. The prayer will be answered and ultimate justice will come and be done. And we will live in a world and in a kingdom in which righteousness dwells. Yes. Yes. Oh, so we as a people need to be praying this right now. <laughs> we desperately need to be praying this right now and setting this before us. Well, and I, th- I think it's interesting that the world currently is more comfortable crying out in this way Mm -hmm. than the churches. When we look at the cries of the people in the streets of our country, they're crying out with these kinds of cries. Yeah. And yet the church is uncomfortable with these kinds of cries. And yet we can pray them with a better word, with, with a, a better hope with a like we actually have an answer to the cry yes when the world cries how long until justice how long until every all wrongs are set to right like there's not an ultimate answer mm. for that cry in the world um there's only an ultimate answer for that cry in the gospel so yes. we not only can come alongside the world and and echo their cry we can actually point them to the hope of an ultimate answer. Yes. So, so uh, yeah, we need to, to be praying these things and showing people how we can pray these um, in a way that expresses a righteous and right longing. Uh, pray these things in a way that is actually loving towards mm, the world. Yes. As you were speaking, I couldn't help but think of the witness of Rachel Den Hollander who was the first yeah. victim to publicly publicly come forward with allegations against 
Larry Nasser, and she was the final of 156 survivors to speak in court. And you can look up, you can see her give her testimony in court on YouTube. You can you, also you talked about this in a sermon. Before. Yes, you can also go and read it, and it is worth reading. It is such a powerful testimony, and there you will see her talk about justice, mm-hmm. and she will plead with the judge to give Larry Nasser the the appropriate and the harshest sentence for the sake of young girls. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, she presents the gospel and talks about the forgiveness that's available to Larry Nasser if he will repent. It is it is so powerful. I was also thinking about the Charleston church shooting and the members of that African-American church mm-hmm. that went to the prison. And even though the man on the other side of the window had shot their family members they sat there and they talked about justice but they talked about the forgiveness that's available and how that grabs the world's attention and how that is such a powerful display of the beauty of the gospel and how it is a picture of justice and love coming together well and i think i think that this is another place where the gospel's good news in that, it, so we talk about the gospel being good news and that there's grace and forgiveness and forgiveness, but the gospel is also good news in that ultimate justice is done. In other words, there's never such thing as satisfactory justice from a human court. Mm. Mm. I, I, it's never enough, is it? You know, I mean, yeah. like, like even when we see people get prosecuted and people get sentenced it's never enough right like people are like it should yes. have been harsher it should have been longer it should yes have been. or even if it's the harshest longest sense or even right. a death sentence death penalty yeah it doesn't bring the victims mm. don't feel a final sense of yeah, satisfaction there's not a they? there's not a sense of satisfaction and actual justice done and the gospel brings the word that the ultimate court will do ultimate justice and that the wrong will actually be righted through the cross of Christ where the only blood that could ever actually pay a penalty for sin was spilt Mm. or through ultimate judgment in hell, which is a picture of what sin actually deserves, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm. and and so I, I, the gospel is good news and that ultimate justice actually happens. Yes. You know? And so, so even when you're talking about uh, Rachel Den Hollander uh, and like Larry Nasser, I'm sitting here going, like I'm thinking about what he did and I'm mm-hmm. thinking about the, the, and I'm like, the sentence and I'm like sitting here going, no, no earthly court can, can level something mm. that, does justice mm-hmm. you know for that our hearts long for more and even if nasser by the grace of god repents finds forgiveness in christ and spends eternity in union with christ and blessedness mm-hmm. that sin doesn't escape ultimate justice mm-hmm. for it will have been born in the body of jesus on the cross. Mm. And if he doesn't repent, that 
that sin won't escape ultimate justice. So there's mm. just like the gospel just gives me this release yes. of ultimate justice done. And that's what empowered Rachel Den Hollander mm-hmm. to say, I can pray for your forgiveness. Yes. Yes. Beautiful. Jonathan, thank you. What a what a timely word. And the Lord knew that we needed to hear it. So as you were studying and you knew you needed to lay this piece aside, I'm glad we were able to bring it back up and discuss it on Shades Midweek. It's really the only reason we started a midweek podcast is I was like, guys, I gotta, I, I, I need a place to air out. <laughs> These things I have to cut. That's not true. <laughs> oh, so no. good. So good. Well, thank you for sharing that. No, absolutely. And, and I truly did. I truly did enjoy last week's podcast. It's it's one of the things it's it's one of the things I love about Shades Midweek. Am I allowed to be a fan of the show? Is that <laughs> is that allowed? Yeah, sure. It's, it's sure. Yeah. Um it's it's one of the things I love about it is that we have conversations from imprecatory psalms yes to, you know, movies. Yes, to so, a- to ancient beekeeping. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, sometimes in the same episode. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a little all over the place. I, I feel like people are getting a window into what our actual conversations are like <laughs> when, when we get the chance to, to talk with one another. It, it's, yes. it varies that much. It, it, it really, really does. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, well, thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by this conversation. If you have any questions, feel free to email us at midweek at shadesvalley.org. Or if you have any thoughts, we'd love to hear your thoughts. This has been another episode of Shades Midweek.